our Christianity gets a hold of us and resets us on God. I wonder this morning if you need a reset that finds rest in God. I wonder if you've looked for that rest in other places and come up wanting. If you find rest in God, then you'll have the margin to share the gospel of God with unbelievers, to teach the gospel of God to your closest friends and the family that's right under your nose in your home, and to give the gospel of God even in corporate worship by singing and hearing the word read and preached, praying together, to live the gospel of God even in corporate worship with these people that you come together with. The benefit of finding rest is the gospel will go forward to unbelievers in life and in worship. The dangers of continuing to grind our gears when we're restless. I don't think I have to explain those to you. The dangers are not only ineffectiveness, but at some point, the wheels on the vehicle of life can just come off. can only run it out of balance for so long. Let me give you the, the narrative in brief of what we're about to read, because the narrative flows along quickly, and we're jumping into Daniel, which was six centuries before the birth of Christ. So there's, there's a need to get the context. So the first six chapters of Daniel are a beautiful narrative. It's bilingual. You're going to see in verse 4 today that we're going to shift from Hebrew to Aramaic. Aramaic will run from chapter 2, verse 4 through chapter 7. Aramaic was the language of the Babylonian Empire. And chapters 2 through 7 has an international rather than simply a Hebrew focus. God fulfills his promise to bless all families of the earth through the seed of Abraham, in part by staying with his people as they spread out to other places. You may remember Jonah going to Nineveh. It's sort of like that. We have Daniel and his companions going to Babylon. In 605 BC, during the first wave of Judah's deportation to Babylon, the best and the brightest Hebrew boys were exiled to what I called in the last sermon, the University of Babylon. They were far from their families of origin that had reared them in the faith, and they're far from their places of worship. And they were sent cleverly by King Nebuchadnezzar to what could be described as re-education centers, centers of Babylonian literature and language. Chapter 1 says as much. Daniel and his three companions, you may know them better as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were carted off with this larger group of Hebrew teenage boys. And they were some of the only ones that we have reason to believe resisted conformity to the pagan Babylonian ways. It was just maybe these four and no more. These are the ones that get remembered for it. So when you read chapter 1 of Daniel afresh, you find that Daniel and his companions are set in contrast to the other teenage exiles in Babylon. Daniel resolved not to eat the king's food. And in chapter 2, we have a scene where Daniel may, may still be in school, depending on how you can't count the years. He may have graduated by now. We're a little unsure, but depending on how you count the years of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, as you hear the first opening salvo of chapter 2, depending on how you count his years, perhaps as an ascension year, will determine whether or not you think Daniel was graduated or not from his years in university there. But he, success, he was successful and excelled in his studies, as we talked about last time, which is a good indication that we should understand our Christian discipleship as a learning excursion into the Word of God. Nebuchadnezzar himself, for his part, reigned from 605 B.C. to 562 B.C. He presided over the destruction of the temple. He presided over the deportation, three waves of deportation 
of the Hebrew people to Babylon. By man's standards, he had no reason to be troubled inside. He had conquered the former ruling empire, Assyria. The mediocre empires of the time were now paying tribute to him, which meant they were vassal servants of his. They were under his domain. And uh, he, everybody had surrendered. So Babylon would eventually fall to Persia about 70 years after what we're talking about. But that's not this time. King Nebuchadnezzar lives his life as the, the most powerful man in the most powerful empire on planet Earth until he's done in 562 B.C. This is 605 B.C. So the dream, the troubling dream, the sleepless night we're going to read about, makes not a lot of sense in human terms. Nebuchadnezzar was king. And king, you know, unless you're in Saudi Arabia today, you may not really understand a king. King doesn't, it doesn't compute with us unless you're studying history with King George or something in American history. I mean, what is a king to us? So I, I want you to think of a king today in terms of historically, think of totalitarianism. The king can give an edict and everybody has to do it. But also, to make it more practical and contextual, I want you to think today of people in your life that can make a decision and it affects how you must live your life, like a policy decision. Um, and so, you know, to a lesser extent than a king, of course, it's anybody that has influence that you are compelled to follow or, or really must follow. Uh, a boss, a parent, um, a, a, uh, a governing authority, perhaps, that can issue policy, a legislator. You could fill in the blanks. Uh, you, you probably have some kingship in your life, some dominion that you're supposed to, to lead, most likely. I would say that you do, if you think about it hard enough. Maybe a few of you littles don't, but one day you probably will. Certainly, we all have an, an influence over ourselves to govern ourselves. Nebuchadnezzar had influence over everybody. What he said uh, went, and he had no reason to be troubled inside, at least not by our standards, but he was because God is God. And what happens with Nebuchadnezzar, well, I get ahead of myself. Let me say it this way, too. Nebuchadnezzar, by way of narrative here, he's a religious man. The uh, British Museum, to this day, actually has a record of a prayer that Nebuchadnezzar had made to his deity, Marduk. So if you've ever studied the Enuma Elish, and Protestant moderates and liberals like to take the Enuma Elish and try to compare it to the creation story and denigrate the Bible and all that, I can talk about that offline. I'm not getting into that here. We affirm the Word of God as inspired, inerrant, and infallible, and we don't dictate, we don't get into all that stuff in here that's beyond the scope of this discussion. But nevertheless, that's the Babylonian deity that they're talking about. And in the British Museum, there's a prayer of Nebuchadnezzar as a religious man where he prays a lengthy prayer to Marduk in his coronation. And so it's helpful to know a little bit about Marduk. Marduk is not like the Trinitarian God that we worship and serve. Marduk had no Trinitarian relationship in eternity past. If you read Michael Reeves' little book on delighting in the Trinity, he gives a, a, a nice little two-pager explanation of Marduk and the differences between Marduk and the one true God. But suffice to say, Nebuchadnezzar is no atheist. His religion was pagan, but it, but it was religious. And as the ESV Bible says, in the ancient world, dreams were thought to be shadows of future events. Dreams are thought to be shadows of future events. David Helm, for his part, says it like this about Nebuchadnezzar. He says, Nebuchadnezzar is a man named after the Babylonian god of wisdom. His very name is after the Babylonian god of wisdom. Now, that's going to be important. The Babylonian god of wisdom was Nabu. And so Nebuchadnezzar was deeply pious. He'd been raised in a culture that considered dreams and visions to be a way that God or the gods broke through the barriers of the physical world to communicate metaphysical truths concerning the future. So next time you're in a Barnes & Noble and you see the metaphysical section, just think, metaphysical, something out there besides us, something going on. Dreams were thought to break through. 
In the West, in our day, dreams are rarely viewed as a way that, that the divine would communicate to us. Instead, since the advent of psychoanalysis in the 20th century, dreams are thought to reveal a personal inner struggle. The dream becomes a way in which the subconscious speaks with you, with a person, not something originating from the heavens. But Nebuchadnezzar's view is one shared by God's people. It seems to be commensurate with the Bible, if you look at with Jacob in Genesis 28, or Joseph and his interpretation of dreams in Genesis 41. This man had been given a dream, and he can't even remember the dream, but it mortified him. He can't even remember the dream, let alone interpret it. For a religious man like Nebuchadnezzar, this would be really troubling, supersonic troubling. Perhaps his God was warning him of something ominous on the horizon, and if he was warning him, he would need to figure out what it was so that he could act wisely and not lose his empire. So he's troubled. You're going to hear in the text that he's sleepless, restless. Yet here he is, a man named after his God of wisdom, but left in the dark, ignorant of what's going to happen. The character and content of the dream must be made known to him. And so if the gods are warning him of something ahead, he's willing to actually threaten the lives of an entire vocational class of wise men in his empire in order to have just sort of a, a, a Hail Mary throw down field chance of getting the touchdown of the information that he needs. So we are meant, I think, in a sense, in the first 13 verses of this, to sympathize with this restless king in a strange sort of way, because you wouldn't have thought it if you were reading it from a strictly Hebrew perspective. So the situation in Daniel 2, 1 to 23, is the most powerful man in the known world in the 6th century BC, troubled with sleepless nights, he uses the resources he has, a class of wise men known as enchanters, sorcerers, Chaldeans, and astrologers to figure out not only the interpretation but the content of his dream. And he threatens an entire profession of wise men that they wouldn't face not only their own harm and their death, but their, their families, their houses would die. They would, he's threatening their people. You're going to hear it. Well, let's just get into it. But let me say it this way. As we're reading this, think about restlessness and think about how we have rest in a better king. Think about it that way. And think about restlessness from the vantage point of angry bosses, angry authority figures in our lives, anxious friendships, and sometimes breakthrough blessed moments. Because those are the three things you're going to see in this text. The tagline is, you can find rest in the coming King Jesus in the midst of angry bosses, verses 1 to 13, anxious friendships, verses 14 to 19, and blessed moments, verses 20 to 23. Let's hear the word of God now read. Daniel chapter 2. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, Let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will show its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you're trying to gain time because you see that the word for me is firm. If you do not make known the dream to me, there is but one sentence for you. 
You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods, whose dwelling is not with flesh. Because of this, the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out, and the wise men were about to be killed, and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree, the decree of the king so urgent? And then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel. And Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from God, the God of heaven, concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed is the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in, dark, in the darkness, and the light dwells in, with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might, and now have now made known to me what we asked of you. For you have made known to us the king's matter. And just for context, verse 24, Therefore Daniel went to Arioch, into Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon, and he made a statement. So we'll get into the second half of this the next time that I preach from Daniel. But may God bless the reading of his word and minister grace unto the hearers. So the, the death squads have been sent out by the king, right? Death squads have been sent out by the king. They're going to, they're going to kill an entire class of working people. They're called uh, enchanters, and they're, they're called astrologers. There's several terms used for them here. Chaldeans, a subset focused on geography. But he threatens an entire profession of wise men that, that they and the ones they love would be harmed if they can't meet his, frankly, unreasonable demand. And so our text today kind of ends with the counterpoint to this story, which is found in verses 20 to 23, where the one true God is praised, where, where the only worthy king of all time and all ages, is praised. And even the good kings, like David, can only in their better times point toward that one true king. And so we examine this contrast in each subset of verses today. The praiseworthy God, who shows us how to find rest in a restless world, and unreasonable authority figures that are restless themselves and project anger on those that they should be serving. You know, I'm reminded... In the Old Testament, the kings, the good kings, did it, but they were all commanded to know the, the law so that they could govern with justice. They could administrate rightly. Kings have a responsibility to people in the ancient world. Our influencers today have a responsibility to people. You, you know, there's a centurion story in the New Testament where a centurion says of the Lord, I know what it's like to be in authority and under authority, both. 
you know, if you don't know one, you can't really know the other. Like, if you don't know how to be under authority, you can't really rightly handle being in authority. Authority is, it's, a, it's part of the human condition. To, to, to be anti-authority is just to be immature. You're never going to get over authority. It's always going to be in your life. Young people, hear me. You will never, you could campaign for the next 10 years on the demolition of all authority in society and some other influencer will rise up and mess up your whole paradigm. You will, look at the French Revolution. You will never get rid of authority. The question is not whether or not authority is bad because it's not. The question is, is the authority good? Are those that are in authority acting with wisdom? And Really, that's a spiritual enterprise, right? Whether it's a parent, father or mother, there's an authority there. It's an undeniable, irremovable authority. We can kick against it, but it doesn't go away. As soon as you give birth to that child, you have this responsibility, and they are powerless to keep you from influencing them. A young man stands up here today and praises his, says his dad and his mom raised him the right way. Well, thank God for that, but there's a whole lot of stories where it doesn't work that way, right? And so we have a lot of confusion about authority, and a lot of authority is angry. And so we're sifting through that and trying to bring the Word of God to bear on that. So within those contrasts here, this isn't stale history. It's the history of the Messiah whom is for you. And you need to understand that even though Daniel didn't have a a really developed understanding of the incarnate Lord Jesus, he knew the promise of Genesis. He knew that a Messiah would come that would one day crush the head or thoroughly defeat our ancient serpent that first tripped up our parents in the Garden of Eden. That is salvation history. Daniel was looking to it, and Daniel's God went with Daniel to the exile, and Daniel's God, your God, goes with you everywhere you go. He's not just here. The church comes in, and then we go out. The church takes God with them. God is with you. When we sing Emmanuel, God is with us, we really mean it. Jesus left us the promised Holy Spirit. Now, I said there were three points, and so I suppose I'll get to it, lest you think you're going to be here all day. But our first point is you can find rest in the coming King Jesus in the midst of angry bosses, angry influencers. And that seems kind of hard to follow. I'm looking and thinking of verses 1 to 13 here. And you can find rest in the coming King Jesus in the midst of angry bosses when they make unreasonable commands. You can find rest. When you need to speak truth to power, like verse 10, you can find rest. And when their anger is their underlying emotion you can also find rest. So so let's think about this point briefly. When the command is unreasonable, you can find rest from your coming king. So what about when the command is unreasonable? Look at verse 2. It's an absolutely unreasonable command. He commands the wise men to tell what, not just how to interpret the dream. They would have had lexicons of information to try to figure that out. I mean, this is a developed field of study, this metaphysical batch of people in the ancient world. Wasn't that. He wants to know the content of the dream. Well, that's a whole other thing. I mean, you, how are you going to get inside another man's head? Especially if, like I think, he doesn't even remember the dream himself. I think that's part of why he's acting all wonky. So his request is totally unreasonable. And you might read this and, and think to yourself after rereading verse 2, okay, well, that's, that's them and, and that's, that's not us. But how many of us, to think of this in context for us, because God gives us the word for us, how many of us are guilty of making an unrealistic command to someone in our charge? I mean, really, have you ever asked your kid to do something they're not capable of, really? Have you, have, you, have you ever asked somebody that you work with to do something that you wouldn't really be willing to do yourself? You know, I'm reminded as an elder in a church, 
of how much the proto-elders in Acts 6 wanted to wait tables. And it took the Lord to tell them, you're going to have to get some deacons because I need you to give more time to word and prayer. It's not that they were lazy. They weren't trying to structure themselves out of waiting tables. They were told, hey, listen, you need to give more time to word and prayer for the good of the flock. Let's get some more people that can help do the ministries of the church. You understand, need to understand, if you're going to be like the centurion that understands what it's like to be under authority and in authority, when you are given authority, authority is to serve, not to be served. And how many of us are guilty of making unreasonable requests of those that we're supposed to take care of. Now, obviously, there's another side to this. They have to be willing to do what you say, and sometimes there's, there has to be punishment when someone does. I'm not advocating bad parenting. I'm just saying, am I using the influence, the authority that God's given me to serve for the common good, for the betterment and advancement of the gospel, or am I just using it to kick around because I can, because i got a cucklebur in my proverbial saddle? Now, I want to say it the other way. If you are an employee or a son or a daughter, a student, you fill in the blank, and you have people in authority that can make policy for you, and you are bound to some extent by it. I mean, first of all, I hope that you understand that God allows authority. Even Daniel's not just running around as an anarchist saying that King Nebuchadnezzar's got to go. Right? He's accepted the authority that God has allowed. He's read the Scriptures rightly. He understands what Jeremiah is writing about and explaining. He gets it. He gets the program. It's tough life, but he gets it. And he'll see not only the, the fall of Judah, but also the fall of Babylon. He's going to get some recompense. He'll live to see King Cyrus, last verse of Daniel 1. But just, just to say to you, if, if you're over that hurdle, and, and some of you need to get over that hurdle, but if you're over that hurdle, what do you do when you have a basic healthy respect of authority, but it becomes heavy-handed? It becomes uh, unreasonable in its requests. Well, that's tough, isn't it? Uh, it's really tough because it, I suppose if it's an abusive situation, you should go to a different authority and get help. Absolutely. Like, if you, whatever the authority is, if it's abusive, you should go to a different authority. For example, if you were to have a father that was abusive, you should go to the elders of the church. You should go to the authorities. You should get help. That you better be, I mean, it needs to be actual abuse, not just he told you to clean your room. It's not the same thing. But if it's, a, if it's abuse, then yeah, you go to a different authority in order to bring pressure on that authority. And that, that is... That is um, that's a real thing. I'm actually listening to a podcast right now talking about a story out of Mississippi from about 20 years ago of, a, of an authority that went bad that had to be corrected by another authority. That happens, right? But what happens, let's get a, more, a little more pedestrian with the application. What happens when an authority in your life is asking you to do something that's unreasonable, but you don't really have a way out of it, and that unreasonableness is not necessarily rank abuse. It's just they're just not really treating you like they'd want to be treated. I think there's some principles in this text that apply to you in that situation. Uh, one of them is get other spiritual friends around you that you can share the burden with that can pray with you. Daniel had his three buddies and pray together about whatever it is that's going on in your life that seems unreasonable. I think that's a good thing to do. Uh, never stop worshiping God. Now, that's a good principle. I mean, Daniel doesn't stop worshiping God through all of this toughness, right? He keeps worshiping God. So I think something to think about there when we're talking about when the command is unreasonable. What about when you must speak truth to power? Now, this is an interesting aspect of this text. Look at verse 10. In verse 10, it says, there, The Chaldeans answered the king as the spokesman for this class of, of wise men and said, There's not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. This can't be done. No great and powerful king has asked something like this. This is unreasonable. Now, I thought about this, because it's my job to think about these things before I get here, right? 
Some of you think with me about these things because you know what text is coming and you read it ahead of time and think about it. So maybe you thought of this too if you did that, or you think with me now about it. But what if these Chaldeans had been more willing to speak truth to power before their life was on the line? You know what this is like, right? It, it, it's, I'm, I'm, you, know what a, you know what a sycophant is? You ever heard of that word? A sycophant? When you just basically, you just, um, you're just always uh, being kind of sicky sweet to those in authority. Like flattery. You're always flattering them. You're never willing to tell them the truth. I think it was Kissinger that said that the job of anybody in a staff is to speak truth to power. You've got to speak truth to power. Trust and verify. Speak truth to power. I wonder if, if Nebuchadnezzar would have been better served if the people would have spoken truth to power more consistently. I mean, think, think about King Dan, or about not King, but about Daniel in chapter one. That's what he does through the chain of command, right? He says, "Hey, I'm resolved. I'm not eating the king's food." We don't even know why he didn't eat the king's food. We talked about that last time, but I'm not doing it. Now he didn't do it hatefully, but he's like, "Hey, listen, I think we can find an in run around this. You don't have to kill me, but I'm not eating the king's food. I'm not going to do it this way." And he finds an in run around it. But that's sort of speaking truth uh, up the ladder of authority to power. He's speaking truth to power. I just kind of have in my mind, and, and I don't know that this this is a, this is necessarily the way it happened, but I'm thinking about the Chaldeans having not probably been willing to do that with a king because it cost them their head. Now they're they're kind of forced. I got to tell him this is unreasonable. Like I have to speak truth to power because I'm going to die. They have, they're powerless to determine, to sort of soothsay what the king's dream was under the cover of the night. And, and frankly, we would be too, right? I mean, da- Daniel asks the God of the impossible to do something for him. And it's not like a one-on-one for us. Like, we shouldn't be like, hey, let's all go home and ask God to tell us to interpret someone else's dream, let alone to actually know someone else's dream. Tell me what Bill's dream was two nights ago. That's not the application of this text. This was a stitch in time. It was a special situation. And what Daniel was doing wasn't just for his own glorification and, and some kind of get, to get on TBN or something. That's not what he was doing. What he was doing was trying to save the lives of himself and an entire cast of people. What he was doing was noble. It wasn't just self-aggrandizing. Now, we're looking at this. They didn't speak truth to power. So I'm thinking maybe there's an application there. Because as Christians, we are the people that serve. We're the best citizens in the empire, as the ancients said, during the ten waves of persecution of the Roman Empire. But at the same time, when something rubs morally against the moral code that we've been given from Scripture, we speak truth to power. So that, don't, don't be a, a sycophant. Don't, don't be that way. And then within this first point, also, what do you do when anger is the underlying emotion of those that are supposed to serve you? Now, I don't have a lot to say about this. My mind went to an illustration about angry birds, and then I decided that was absolutely unhelpful, so I ditched that. Um, but, but, you know, my kids used to have this little game, angry birds. But, but I just see a lot of birds that are angry. Like I, see, I see a lot of anger, and I, I sort of meditated on, like, why is an unchristian angry? And family and I were talking about this a little bit. I, I think an unchristian is angry because they're frustrated, and they, they don't have the answer, or they don't accept the answer, right? But why are so many Christians angry? Like, why, do, why is our, our attitude one of anger? Where does that come from, exactly? And if you're an angry Christian, if, that's, if that categorizes you, I mean, if you're, if you're an angry non-Christian, then I just simply, I have a very straightforward answer. You need the gospel. Like, until you receive the gospel, I don't, there's, there's no category to talk about what it means to be an angry Christian. You might be angry at Christians, but you're not an angry Christian. But for a Christian, why, why, are, why, why are you anger, angry? Uh, it's been said, helpfully, that anger is a secondary emotion. So if lately you're described as, as angry, what, what's, what's got at you? And, and track that back and, and get some biblical conversations going this week and, and figure out what, what's got you peeved. Uh, I mean, everybody gets a little angry every now and then. I'm not saying that. And there is a category for righteous anger. I'm not talking about that. But if you're angry all the time, it's probably not all righteous anger. What's, what's got you sour? Um, 
I mean, and there are a lot of things that might be. I mean, it could be bitterness uh, that's rooted in, in maybe some loss, uh, feeling like you've been treated unfairly. Maybe that you're, you know, you're trying to couch pride, so you're always looking at what other people are doing wrong. I, I, don't, I don't know exactly what it is for you, but if you're angry, we don't want the root of bitterness to grow up to defile many, like Hebrews says. So overcome your anger through the help of the gifted saints that God has given you. I mean, that's the purpose of this whole project, really is your sanctification, to grow up in your salvation. So if anger is an issue, let's not let that pass by. Nebuchadnezzar is angry. He is, uh, he's an angry boss in this situation, angry influencer. But I want you to know, and I hope this, these first 13 verses kind of puts you on the trail of the fact that you can find rest for your, willy, for your weary soul from a greater king, even in the midst of very ungodly behavior and un- unrealistic authority. Now, so I must move on. Uh, the second point has to do with Verses 14 through 19. You can find rest in your coming king in the midst of anxious friendships. Anxious friendships. Daniel has friends. He's got friends before he needs them. So there's, there's something very simple there is have friends before you need them. Uh, he had identified what we now know by their, by their Babylonian names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Daniel had identified these three as trustworthy companions. And they, I'm doubting that they had had just started praying together in the narrative of this text. I'm guessing that they had a long history of corporate worship together based on how friendly they are with one another and how quickly they get on their knees and they start uh, praying. In fact, we know that Daniel was familiar with prayer, right? I mean, he prayed, he gets in trouble for praying three times a day. He doesn't, he doesn't pray, he doesn't worship the king, and all this happens later. But we have here uh, Daniel and his companions that are willing to be identified as friends, serving the one true king, even in exile, before they necessarily need the friendships. Now, you can find rest in the coming king in the midst of your anxious friendships. And this, this rest will help you in your speech patterns. This rest will help you when you're nervous because you don't have all the information. And this rest will help you when corporate prayer is your only recourse, which I've already kind of alluded to here, because they pray together, which is very, very interesting, for the same thing at the very least, if not together in the same exact place. So, so consider these verses because it's so helpful to consider them afresh. Look at verse 14. The text says in Daniel 2.14, Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, so Captain Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? And Arioch made the matter known to Daniel. And so just pause right there and just think about the fact that, that Daniel, in the midst of a, of a very tumultuous situation, is calm. Where does that calm come from? I think it has to come from his God. It has to come from our God. He's calm. And he replies with discretion. Doesn't say too much. Let's his words be few. He replies with discretion. So you find rest right here when, when every word counts. I'll read the rest of, the, of this, this section of text in a moment, but I want to say a, a word about words whenever words counts. I have a little Puritan paper back up here. I can't get to my hands to hold it up. It's a little bitty thin book by Richard Sibbs about 400 years ago. He wrote a Puritan paperback, The Bruised Reed. Or it's, he wrote a book as a Puritan pastor that's now published by the Puritan paperback series. But it's called The Bruised Reed. And in the chapter titled Quench Not the Spirit, he gives notices of very sorts of means that, that uh, offend people as they're going against the merciful disposition of Christ. And within those offenses, he gives this quote in his seventh assertion. So I want to say all that to commend the book to you, because along the restlessness theme of this text, Richard Sibbs' little book is really, really helpful. But here's what he said in that seventh assertion, so apt today, even though it was 
four centuries ago. He says, There is something due on a penny as well as a pound. Therefore, we must be faithful in the least when the season calls for it. Then our words are like apples of gold in pictures of silver, quoting Proverbs 25.11. And then he says this sentence, One word spoken in season will do more good than a thousand out of season. One word spoken in season will do more good than a thousand spoken out of season. Maybe you know the preciousness of an apt word. It doesn't usually come from a gunslinger, does it? Here's a word. I'm just going to tell everybody what they need to do because I'm the smartest guy in the room. You don't trust that person, number one. And number two, you don't trust what they say. Even if they hit on some themes, there's no context of relationship. It's unloving. It's the best advice. You just can't follow it. Sometimes it's not good advice at all. But you know that apt word that comes from somebody that cares about you, even if they've only known you a while. They care about you. They've heard you out. They've attended to you. And they say, I think the word of God comes to bear in your life like this. Now that's apples of gold, isn't it? It's precious when a person says that. I wonder how many of us need to take Sibs' advice 400 years later that one spoken word in season will do more good than a thousand out of season. I think Daniel got that. As he's not just yakking words all over the place. When the time comes, he's dis- he has discretion and prudence in what he says to the person that has authority over him. Uh, some of you need to be careful, really, with how you talk. And how you talk when you think nobody could possibly find out. You know, there's a proverb. Actually, it's in Ecclesiastes, I think. It talks about how a bird can carry what you say just between you and somebody that's not going to tell anybody and carry it over to that other person and they find out. There's a real neat little proverb in Ecclesiastes about that. Um, just assume whatever you're saying, somebody else is hearing it. I can tell you this much, somebody else is hearing it. But just assume whatever you're saying, somebody else is hearing it. Because that's just the nature of communication. By the way, we're made communicators. We have a wordy God. He made a wordy people. But words have power. They have creation power. Look at Genesis 1. John 1, in the beginning was the Word. Words with God, the Word was God. Words are powerful. The Logos is powerful. We're powerful when we speak. But our words can tear down or they can build up. They can get us further in sanctification or they can hurt people. And I just wonder if we think about the fortuitousness of our speech, if we think fortuitous about our speech, I wonder if we think about the wisdom of our speech. This is something that seems to have been majorly thought through by Daniel and his companions. And we have evidence of that based on the fact verse 14 says, he replied with prudence. So you can find rest in the midst of anxious situations, even with your friends, if you'll count your words and make every word count. Um, I'm not talking about going out in the hallway today and deciding not to talk because it's like everybody's muzzled on the way out. It's like, I'm not going to say that. No, it's not that. It's just, just think, is this loving? Is this kind? Is this helpful? And if it's actually something where you're trying to help someone go a different direction, which you're all called to do, make sure that you've talked to the Lord about the person before you talk to the person about the Lord. That's important. Now, also within the second point, sometimes you have to act when you don't have all the information. You and your friends or you yourself, you have to act. And that's what happens with Daniel. Look at verse 16. I stopped right there in the text as I was rereading. It says, And Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. You know, faithful action assumes imperfect circumstances. You're going to have to choose to act faithfully when your circumstances are not just the way you want them. Let me say it differently. If you wait until your circumstances are absolutely optimal for you, for you to take the next step of faithfulness that God is calling you to in your life, you're never going to do it because the situation is never going to be perfect. You're never going to have an optimal situation. Daniel, it's very interesting what Daniel does here. Um, because the perfect is the enemy of the healthy. Daniel is in this situation, he says, before he even has the interpretation of a dream or the dream's content itself, he says, hey, get me an appointment. 
Now, I guess you could say of Daniel, uh, maybe he's just kind of, you know, rolling the dice. He's taking a chance. I guess you could say that of Daniel. But it sure seems like a, a kind of quiet confidence. Almost like the other three when they're about to face the fiery furnace. You remember what they say in Daniel? Some of you that have, have got the Sunday school answers. Uh, let me just put it for everybody. They say, you know, I'm not going to do what you're asking me to do. Maybe God will deliver me from that fiery furnace or maybe I'll die. But I just want you to know my God's still God. That's kind of the attitude I think Daniel's taking to this. It's not like he's got God over the barrel of a gun. Hey, you're either going to give me this dream or I'm not going to believe in you. It's not like that. Daniel's willing to die. I mean, he, he can die in the court or he can die in the countryside. He's just going to go die in the court if that's what happens. If he doesn't get the, the dream, he's going to go in and try to reason probably with the king and say, kind of like these, these sycophant Chaldeans did. He's going to say, hey, listen, this is unreasonable. I asked God to give it to me. He's the only true God. You don't know it, but you're going to meet him very soon. And I don't know. I don't have it. I asked him. He didn't give it to me. We prayed about it all night. For whatever reason, God didn't give it to me. Come in if you want to, but you're being completely unreasonable. And here's how you can have peace in your life. Maybe Daniel was willing to do that if he didn't get the content. But lo and behold, God was pleased in all of his sovereignty and all of his glory and all of his good providence to give him the content of the dream that apparently the king had forgotten. And that's, that's what happens here. But I want you to understand, he asks for the appointment before he has the information. An application is not for you to go out there and just like, you know, quit your job and, you know, move to the other side of the world. And all. I'm not saying that. I mean, maybe a few of you, maybe. I don't know. God's calling you that. Okay, we'll talk about that. God bless you. want to encourage you. But I'm just talking about being faithful in the next thing for you. I mean, what's that thing? You just, you're just not willing to be faithful to God because you just don't have the right circumstances. You know, Daniel didn't have the right circumstances. And he did what was best next anyway. Last thing with this point is the importance of corporate prayer. Look at verse... Um, Verse 17, Daniel went to his house and he, he communicated wisely. He used his words wisely. He made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, better known as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to you. These are his companions, so he had these friends before he needed them. In verse 18, so you need to have Christian friends before you need them, by the way. Verse 18, he told them to seek mercy from God. So important, right? Seek mercy. The, another derivative of this word would be compassion. Seek compassion from God. Ask for his mercy. You know, Habakkuk had that prayer. In times where wrath is deserved, remember mercy. Habakkuk 3.2 says. So here's this, this prayer. He says, hey, let's, let's pray tonight. And I, I want you to pray specifically that God would, would show us mercy concerning this mystery from the king. And maybe that we won't die and the, along with the rest of these wise men. And of course, they wouldn't die either. Now, before we get to verse 19, because that sort of unfolds all the good news. Think about the weightiness of that night. Can you imagine? Now, you might have heard in the opening part of this sermon, you might have heard and thought, well, if I have sleepless nights, it's because God's not for me. That is so untrue. Think biblically, holistically, right? Jacob wrestles all night. Jesus is getting ready to name the apostles the next day. What's he do? He stays up all night in prayer. Now, is Jesus in any way doing something wrong to stay up all night? No, he's doing something right. So you might work really, really hard for a season. You might stay up in prayer. You might wake up and pray in the middle of the night. And you might be tempted to think, that because your spirit is aroused in prayer, that somehow you're in the same pit as Nebuchadnezzar. And that is not true. These guys stay up all night, and they're troubled. But they're a child of the one true God, aren't they? God is with them. So it's not a one-on-one -on -one correlation. Like, if I just get out of work and I sleep well at night, then I guess I'm right where God wants me to be. No, 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 no. Don't misunderstand. There's sleepless nights that's because of my disbelief and because of my sin and because God is not operating for me because I'm not trusting him. And then there's sleepless nights because you're exactly where he wants you to be. And, and don't, don't misunderstand that. If you, if you think God is against you the first time circumstances get hard and you have a sleepless night, you haven't read much of the Bible to think this through carefully so that you're ready and fortified for the time when it comes. 
Now, I'm no super Christian, and I face plain on this thing every week, so don't take this statement as me praising myself, because it's not true. But I'll tell you this much. I have experienced waking up in the night to pray for you. And I've decided long since that that's a godly thing. That if I wake up in the middle of the night to pray for you, that's a godly thing. That's not a Nebuchadnezzar moment. That's a Daniel moment. I mean, and if it, you know, I'll just sometimes just wake up and pray. I bet you do too. I bet if we did a round robin popcorn here, I bet that's happened to some of you. I bet you've woken up troubled and you pray for somebody. And so I want to say something else about it. And so far as we can share these prayers, some of them you can share and some of them you can't. Some of them are very personal. But I want to say this when you pray. I want you to believe that God gets glory from answering your impossible prayer. Now, if God can give the content of an angry king's prayer to Daniel in the middle of the night when the, four of them, when the three of them are over praying and asking God for mercy, can he not open the eyes of the heart of your wayward loved one? Can he not this very night convict Somebody that you've been praying for for six, seven decades, six, seven years, six, seven days, six, seven months, depending on your age. Can he not reveal the gospel to them and get glory through it? God begs his people to pray. Prayer is the work. You know, I remember earlier I said in the sermon, you may remember rather, I remember it, I said it. I mean, but you may remember, you may not. You may have slept at that point in the sermon. I don't know, so I'll say it again. In Acts 6, it talks about those early proto-elders, those apostles, and how they were so busy doing effective ministries with the Hebrew and Grecian Jews, or Hebrew and Grecian uh, widows, that they weren't doing enough word and prayer. And they were convicted to get more men involved because they needed to spend more time in prayer. Now, that's not discounting prayer, is it? It's also not saying that the deacons shouldn't have been praying. It's just saying, like, if you're doing so much that you're not spending any time in prayer, then you're not calibrated right because prayer is a work, and many times it's the work. Like, you're supposed to be praying. And, and I, th- I just think it is really the outcast discipline of the church. And I'm guilty of this, too. If I could just make more progress, the church would be blessed than if I made more prayer. Like, this is it, right? Whenever a person gets, gets um, to where they can't go as much, they get older, well, I guess I'll just pray. Well, I guess I'll just pray. You see the difference? Like, when you can't go, I guess I'll just pray. I guess I'll just pray. Let your voice be heard in the throne room of heaven. Pray, pray, pray. Read Revelation 6, 9-11 on this. where the, the, the prayers of the saints are heard in the throne room of heaven. And God cares when you pray. He hears when you pray. So, so what bold prayer are you, have you either stopped praying, or are you praying with such reluctancy that you're not really expecting to get the, get the answer? Let's pray bold prayers this week. Let's pray them to the God of heaven. And when I say pray bold prayers, I'm not talking about self-serving prayers. I'm talking about breakthrough prayers. Like this, the Bible says in Luke 1 that Mary praises Jesus because he's the God of the impossible. You remember who our God is? He, he is the God of the impossible. He can soften the heart of the hardest heart on earth, including Nebuchadnezzar. The most powerful person you know can be softened by the one true God. Would you pray and ask him? God moves through prayer. It doesn't move through your cleverness. It doesn't move through my craftiness. It doesn't move through all of our great intellect and all of our wiles. God is pleased, it says, to reveal himself to the simple and the unlearned. The apostles were unschooled, ordinary men. 
That's not a discount to education. I mean, Daniel was educated. It's just to say that is not the litmus test for faithfulness. You trust him. Do you pray? Pray to him and pray in faith. So you can find rest from your coming king in the midst of angry bosses, in the midst of anxious friendships. And then finally and briefly, you can find rest in the coming king, not only in the midst of those difficult times with anger and anxiousness, but also in the midst when you actually get what you want. That can be a difficult thing. We talked about that last time. So let's briefly talk about that because Daniel gets what he's asking for here. It says in verse 19, Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. It's really a very simple sentence. So we wish we had more information, don't we? Uh, but but that, there's not much there. So he gets the vision, a vision of the night. He gets, uh, he gets the dream. It gets revealed to him. The mystery was revealed to him. Now, what could happen here to, that, that he might need to think about, or we might need to think about, that, that was baked into the cake of God's work in him, spiritual work, his faithfulness? Well, he doesn't take credit for it. He, he doesn't try to curry favor with his boss when this happens. He doesn't forget to show gratitude for God for giving it to him. These are real temptations when we succeed. If, 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 you are, if you're praying something that is relative to your own success, you can be very, very careful with that. What happens if you get it? Is it going to be for the good of others? Or is it going to be about your resume and your well-being and your income? Are you going to take the credit or are you going to remember to praise God first? Are you going to try to curry favor with the influencers around you so you can get just the right network, get just where you're going right before you die and meet Jesus? I mean, that makes no sense. Are you going to forget to be thankful? When we have corporate prayers, we have corporate prayers of, of praise. Nick offered the first one today. It's a beautiful prayer. I love that prayer. Moved thinking about those things, about how God's, God's moving our lives through understanding the Christmas story across time. Uh, we have prayer confession and, and assurance of pardon. Brother Will gave that earlier. These are biblically-based corporate prayers. But another biblically-based corporate prayer that I'll offer before we close here today is one of petition and thanksgiving, where we offer thanks to God. And we say, thank you. Are you thankful? Like, are you thankful? That's a great remedy for anger, you know? I said earlier, why are you angry? Well, the next question is, how do you get over it? Gratitude. So how do I get thankful? My life's so terrible. Well, then <laughs> that's the problem. Like, like, stop. I mean, Daniel's got carted off from his home. He can't get to his church. I mean, he's, he's serving under a wicked king. I mean, it's, 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 there's, there's sycophants in the ranks. I mean, this is a mess. And look at what Daniel does. Just I'll, I'll conclude by winding this down with these verses. Beautiful text. It says in verse 19b, look at your text again. It says, then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. He blessed the God of heaven. He was thankful. Right? Doesn't take the credit. Doesn't carry favor with his boss. It's just straightforward. He's doing what God's called him to do. He's giving God the credit. It says in verse 20, Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for all time, to whom belongs wisdom and might. God changes the times and the seasons. He controls the circumstances. So if you're angry about circumstances, be angry with God. And then let anger be cast aside, because to fear God is to become his friend. That's what the text says in Psalm 25, 14. He changes the times and seasons. He removes kings. He sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. If, if you have it, he gave it to you. If you're smart, you think you're a smart guy, smart guy, he gave it to you. you, you he, can, he can make you lose it all if that's what he wants to do. It's God. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what's in the darkness. Every little dark crevice of your life, the things that you think nobody knows, he knows. The things that you think nobody hears is heard. And the light dwells with him. Key in on that. That'll be how we end right there. And the light dwells with him. Verse 23, to you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks. Thanksgiving, prayer of thanks. I give praise. Worshiping together, right? These four give us a good example of corporate worship. For you've given me wisdom and might. You've made known to me what we ask of you. 
and you've made known to us the king's matter. And so Daniel goes forward from there. Corporate worship, so important. i got a brother coming to preach on January 9th here, and if God allows it, he's going to preach on corporate worship from Hebrews 10, 19 to 26. I'm excited about that sermon because it kind of dovetails with this corporate prayer and this prayer of thanksgiving. So let's see how God is working through the word in our church to, to make his people, to give his people what he wants them to have. But I want you to key in here in conclusion that, that little stanza there in verse 22, the light dwells with him as he's praising God. And I want you to contrast that. Remember, there's contrast. That's the mother of clarity. There's contrast all the way through this between our kings. I want you to go back to the statement of verse 11 that we kind of glossed over earlier. It says, the thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods. And here these Chaldeans, finally, they finally get truthful about something. I mean, it's desperation time. He says, whose dwelling is not with flesh. You see that? whose dwelling is not with flesh. Now let's compare those two verses in conclusion. In verse 11, it says, God's dwelling is not with flesh. And in verse 22, the end of it, Daniel is blessing God, praising him in his worship. And it says that the light dwells with him. The light dwells with him. Well, which is it? Does the light dwell with God? And God doesn't dwell with flesh? Or, or does the light dwell with God and God dwells with flesh. Well, I mean, Nick prayed it, didn't he? We read the scripture about it, didn't we? You, you, know, you know the song, Emmanuel. What does Emmanuel mean? God is with us, right? It's not just if God be for us, who can be against us? It's if God be with us, how bad can my circumstances be? I mean, he's not just for you, he's with you. The incarnation is God with us. That's what it means. When two or more are gathered, there he is with us. When we take the Great Commission with us where we go, the end of Matthew says, Lo, I am with you always until the end of the age. So it's not just if God be for us who could be against us. It's if God be with us. If God be with us, how restless do we need to be? Now, we have difficult circumstances, no doubt. And the truth of the matter is, is that we do get restless. And sometimes we're restless because of angry losses in our lives. Sometimes we're restless because of the anxiety and our friends aren't coming through in the clutch with us. We forgot corporate prayer. Sometimes we're restless because power's gone to our head. We haven't handled it rightly. But I want you to understand this morning that God is still with you. He's still for you. God doesn't, he's not fickle like us. He doesn't sort of, he's not a fair weather God. He is with us. And God the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit is for us even when we haven't acted right and when we have not followed the light that He is. I love this verse in Isaiah 57, 15. It's a really good verse for us here. It says, For behold, He who forms the mountains and creates... Hang on, wrong verse. Isaiah 57, 15. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy... I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. Listen to that from Isaiah 57, 15. I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. What a beautiful, beautiful ending. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you Thank you for dwelling with us. True light 
Thank you for coming into the world. So many haven't known you, and you've chosen to make yourself known to us. For the one that's coming along the way today, that's hearing your gospel for one of the first times, I pray you'd help that person to just very simply receive you today, to accept your dwelling in them. Your word says a promise that if we receive you, believe in you, you give us rights as your children. Not because we've been born of a certain bloodline or of flesh, but we've been born above of God. So thank you for becoming flesh and dwelling among us. Thank you for showing us your glory in the fullness of grace and truth. Thank you for giving us not just the law to convict us of sin, but for giving us the gospel to deliver us from our sins. Thank you for delivering us not only from our sins, but from our fear of death and the subjection to lifelong slavery that many of us have had in our restlessness. Please help us, Lord. Help us in our anger to overcome. Help us when we have anxious situations because of furious bosses and people in authority. Deliver the abused by greater authorities coming in and toppling bad authority. Help us to understand authority is not our enemy, even when authority has been misused heavy-handedly. Show us what good leadership looks like as Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. Help those that are anxious. You are Lord of us in our anxious situations. Father, may your name be made known more and more in this society, in the places in where we live and work. We petition you today, Lord, to come and to come soon. We pray for our new members. Keep them. We petition you for our wayward members. Bring them back. We pray for comfort for those that are grieving because they've lost loved ones. The pain is so thick this time of year, and the pain is thick. There are so many right here in this place of worship that have lost a loved one in the recent past, and their grief needs to find an outlet, and I pray you'd help them. Build them up and use us to do it. We petition you for the hospitalized like Don or the sick that cannot be with us today. We pray for those facing testing and different diagnoses. I think of our sister Beverly. We pray for healing. We pray for those that serve, for those missionaries that we know and that we love. We pray for those that help protect us and keep us in a free society, whether on the civilian or the military side. We are grateful for their acts of valor. I pray that we would accept your authority and follow your word. I pray for this next generation. And God, every generation has its challenges. Help them to know that you're the God of the impossible. We pray and petition you for the victims of the tornado that awed us all and bothered us all on Saturday morning. We are troubled for them and we pray for them. We might even wake up in the middle of the night to pray for them. We hope you'll answer our prayers. We believe you. We pray this Advent season to be used of you. Bring many sons to glory. We pray for our babies and for our children, for our unborn children, our pregnant moms. We pray for busy moms and working dads. We pray you protect our marriages and our families from the evil one that seeks to destroy them. We pray for the angry and the confused and the sad. There are so many angry 
We pray for healing this very day, healing that would extend beyond even the body to the emotions, to the mind. Help those that are addicted to recover and overcome in your gospel. We pray for those who have been attacked or harmed. We pray that they would learn to trust again. We pray for reconciliation in the gospel in gridlocked families. Lord, we pray for Bryce Palmer and his mission. We pray for Corey Rash and his ministry at First Baptist Clay. And we ask, Spirit, that you would seek, help us to seek the unity of you through the bond of peace. We are so glad to be your people, marked off and identified with you. You did this for us, and we love you for it, Jesus. Amen.